Many of you know that we went away with our elders over the weekend and we had a time of prayer where we prayed for you, for each person, especially those that filled out the cards. We had um, over 550 prayer cards and that's quite a stack of cards. And we spent hours praying over those cards. And I want you to know that we prayed for you by name. We prayed specifically for those things that you had shared. And I want you to know that we were actually inspired. We were moved by you guys because uh, we were moved by your faith. We were moved by your love for the Lord. Um, We're moved by your um, care for the gospel. So many people wrote on their card, you know, pray for me because I want to be a better witness for Christ. Pray for my neighbor who I'm witnessing to uh, or a relative who I really want to see them come to Christ. Um, So many people prayed and they said, pray for me because I want to have a deeper relationship with Jesus. So when a pastor or an elder sees prayer requests like that, we get pretty excited. That's awesome. But all the requests were important. And we're also moved by um, the hurts, by the challenges, by the needs there are. One of the things that happens when we have an experience like that, that's so focused and intense with so many requests, we become aware of how universal it is that all of us have hurts and challenges in life. You know, sometimes we come in here and the focus is maybe up front on a Sunday morning or it's on the teaching and that's a good thing. But, you know, I think we have to remember, like, we come into this building and all of us have brokenness. We all have things that we're struggling with and wrestling with. We have hurts and disappointments and sicknesses and it's just universal. And so it's, it's everywhere. And so as we prayed about that, um, some of us were thinking... That's kind of a big burden because when you get it all in one shot, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, so what's going to happen? Like there's all these needs. And then we were comforted also to remember that there's a whole body of Christ. You know, it's not just the leaders who pray. It's the whole body that prays. And it's not just the leaders that care. It's Christ calls us to care one for another. And so we were actually giving thanks and filled with gratitude at, for the church, for you guys, for all the ministries, we prayed for the ministries and we prayed for, for our relationships that we can support and love one another. And I think we came away with the sense that the Lord is doing something really special at our church. And we acknowledge that we see the, the Lord's hand at our church. And that's a great thing. So thank you for entrusting us with those prayers. And thank you for being and becoming this church that, that we've been talking about as we talked about the traits of a healthy church. And all that brings us this morning to trait number five in the seven traits of a healthy church, right? We're in the series. We've been going through the different traits. And so far, we've seen Jesus, gospel, gratitude, and prayer. So those have been the four so far. And this morning, we come to this trait called unity. And it's so important. It's so vital. If you want to get a picture of the power of unity, then I want you to picture a body in motion. Not mine. That won't be very powerful. Let's instead, let's picture Usain Bolt, shall we? I mean, think of that guy, right? He's the fastest runner in the world. He's amazing. 
And if you've ever seen him running the Olympics or something like that, um, he makes it down that stretch in nine point some seconds. And he starts out of the blocks. And the other guys, a lot of them have a faster start. But, but man, once he hits his stride, like no one's, he just, just goes right by everybody. And it's a beautiful thing to see. And it's a body in motion. But here's what's happening as Bolt is running. All of the parts are working together in unison. All of the parts of his body, they're all called to task for one purpose. And that's to go down that line and to finish first. And it's amazing to see that. And if one part of the body says no, it's over, right? Isn't that the moment when you see the poor runner? He's trained for years, for four years for the Olympics, and he starts out of the blocks, and he's going down the thing, and then he pulls up. It's like one part. It's just that Achilles tendon. It's just that hamstring, you know? And the, and the poor thing says, you know what? No, no, I'm done. I'm done. No more abusing me. I'm the Achilles tendon, and, I'm, and this is my turn to speak. We're done. We're, we're not going to participate in this anymore. All right, you're done. And he is done. He's just like crawling off the thing because it only takes one part to say, I'm not going to work in harmony. And everything changes. If you want to get a picture of the power of unity, picture in your mind a great orchestra, a great philharmonic orchestra on the stage. Let's think... Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra, one of the great orchestras in the world. There they are. They're on the stage. They're ready to go. They're going to play Beethoven's Fifth. The conductor steps up to the podium. He's decked out in the tux. He has long, wavy, black, thick hair. He actually does. And he's amazing. And he, 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 like, he pulls out the baton. It's ready to go. And... Bum, 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 and it's so awesome. And everyone's working together in harmony for one purpose. But what happens if the string section says, you know, we're done with this. <laughs> you know what? We don't like your blanket. We don't like your touch. You're kind of arrogant. Forget it. We're not going to follow, right? Unity is what happens when all the parts work together. When every individual with a gift or a talent or an ability begins to link with others for one common purpose, and suddenly individuals become more than individuals. And the ability to accomplish something greater just skyrockets. If you want a picture of the power of unity, I want you to picture in your mind the church. Not the church as it always is, because sometimes that's not so great a picture, unity. But maybe we should picture instead the church as Jesus has called it to be. The church as the New Testament describes it. The church as a place where every member is engaged. They're all working together for a purpose each one contributing. And really, this takes it even further because it's not just people using their gifts and contributing to a cause. It's actually people in relationship. Picture in your mind, if you want to know the power of unity, picture in your mind a place where you can come and there you find a community of love. You find people who deeply care about one another. 
people who listen to each other, people who are quick to forgive, people who work past their differences, and they do have differences, people who admit that we're all imperfect, but we're not going to leave. Picture the church united, and you're going to get a vision of what can be, what should be, and what Christ prayed for. The Bible tells us that Jesus, right before he went to the cross, right before he was arrested, he prayed the longest prayer recorded in the New Testament in John 17. And in the middle of that prayer, actually towards the end of it, Jesus prayed and he said, Father, I pray not only for these, but those who will believe, and I pray that they might be one. That's a prayer for unity. I pray that they might be one so that the world may know that you sent me. How high are the stakes in this? The prayer of Jesus. If you want to know the power of unity, then think of a group of people who are so united in love, in care, in vision, in purpose, that the world looks at that and says, that's a miracle. That's actually a miracle. And I'm going to believe in Jesus because of that. Isn't that amazing? See, now that's the prayer of Jesus. So we come today to trait number five, and that trait is unity. And we're actually going to take three whole weeks on the theme of unity. Three weeks. Why are we taking three weeks? We're going to take more time on unity than any of the other traits. Why would we do that? You know, when we get to trait number five, we've entered into a new world. It's a different category. And here's why. Because every single one of the other traits is something that you can do by yourself. You can do it on your own. Right? Trait number one is Jesus. So you want to be focused on Jesus. Well, you can be focused on Jesus. You'd say, I'm a Christ-focused person. That's, you can and you should. It's great. Trait number two is the gospel. You could say, well, I've learned the gospel. I've heard the gospel. I'm, I'm growing in the gospel. And that's awesome. That's great. You can and should do that. What about gratitude? Trait number three. Are you a grateful person? I hope so. You know, you don't, really don't need anyone else to be grateful. You can just say, well, the Lord saved me. He forgave my sins. I have the hope of heaven. I see him working in my life. And man, I'm grateful. You can do that all by yourself. How about prayer? You can pray on your own. In fact, you should. Jesus said, go into your closet, shut the door, pray to your Father in secret. I think that's like by yourself, right? Of course, you want to pray with others too, but you, know, you don't actually have to be with others to pray. So every one of those traits is something that every individual can and should do on their own. But trait number five, now here's a different category. Because unity, by definition, you can't do it without someone else. It's impossible. Can't be done. So now we're in a realm that is really a challenge to us. Really challenging. Jesus prayed, let them be one. But oh, this is a challenge because now we got to deal with other people. And we're all imperfect people who have come to Christ for forgiveness and for renewal. And we're all in process. That means Christ calls us to be united, to be one with imperfect people who are very different than we are. And all of a sudden we say, well, that's, that's really a challenge. 
But can I tell you something else? It's not optional. This isn't optional. It's not an optional extra. I'll take Jesus in the gospel, thank you, and a side of gratitude. But <laughs> I'm going to opt out of the at unity thing. <laughs> no. no, 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 you can't do that. This is not optional. And I'm going to show you in the scriptures where it tells us that. So let's get our Bible out and open up to the book of Ephesians this morning. If you need a Bible, raise your hand if the guys may have already given them out or whatever. But uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 11 to 22. And actually, you know, when we started our series on the seven traits, we started at the end of Ephesians chapter 2. Now, someone's going to accuse me of double dipping. They're going to say, hey, wait a minute, we already read this chapter and, um, like, is this becoming your favorite chapter or something? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. It is currently my favorite chapter. Uh, I, I feel like it's so rich, it's so deep, it's so important that we need to really focus on this. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. We're all going to tune in. We're going to think about Unity. We're going to hear the voice of the Spirit. What is he saying to us as a church? Um, what is written here is, is what God wants for us, what, what Christ prayed for. It's what we need to be working towards. So let me read this and uh, point out some things, and we'll come back and talk about some of the main points. But as I read it, I want you to watch for certain things. I'll sort of point them out as we go along. Chapter 2, verse 11, Therefore remember... That at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. And without God in the world. Now let's just pause there for a minute. So if you, if you heard that, if you're listening to that, I think you're going to hear the intensity. Like there's some intensity there. It's a pretty intense thing to say to a group of people. And you're going to recognize in here the language of division. Now in our chapter, there's going to be a lot of words, a lot of language that describes division disunity. And it's intense. There's an intense description of division in this paragraph. And in verse 12, it says, remember that you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant and covenants and promises. And if I just take three words and I go separated, alienated, and strangers. Strangers, which means foreigners, really. It means people who don't belong. Separated, alienated, strangers. That's the language of division. And even beyond that, um, if you kind of just read between the lines, there's sort of name-calling on top of that, right? It's like, you know you, what they call you? They call you guys the uncircumcision, you know? It's like, so that can't be good. So there's a language, there's, a, there's an ethos of divisiveness, of separation, of not belonging, of animosity between Jew and Gentile. That's where our paragraph begins. Let's read on. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I want to add to the list of the division words and terms and put far off. You, you who are far off, okay? That's another division word, far off. And you know, far off doesn't necessarily mean far off in distance. It doesn't mean that you were thousands of miles away. It means that you're far off because you're not included. You're not part of the group. You're far away. I mean, you could be two feet away, but you're far off. You could be standing right here, but you could be a million miles away. That's what that means. It's, it's a division kind of an idea. But isn't this beautiful? It says, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And here's what we're going to find in this passage. And it's really, really interesting. Very intense language describing division, disunity, and equally intense, beautiful language describing unity. It's going to be side by side. Isn't this a beautiful picture? Now, you who once were far off, now you've been brought near. You're brought near. Something's changing. Something has changed. This is the language of unity. Let's watch for that. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Here's another unity word, the word peace. Peace is a great word, by the way. That is just a award-winning word, and it's going to show up several times here. He is our peace. Now, you can say, well, what kind of peace is that? Does that mean peace with God or peace with other people? And the answer is yes. Yes. Because those two things go together. He, Jesus, is our peace. How about this? He has made us both one. The word one is a great word, isn't it? That's a unity word. Jesus prayed for that word. He said, I pray that they might be one. He has made the two into one. He's taken two people that were strangers to each other, alienated, separated, far off, and he's brought them near, and he's made them one. It's a dynamic picture that's given to us, and it says, because he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Put it in the negative column, hostility. Put it in the division column, hostility. Enmity, it says in some Bibles. It's an intense word, okay? It's like warfare, animosity, Strife, hostility, aggression. Okay, there's some more of that divisive kind of language that's being used. It's very intense and it's very real. Jews and Gentiles in the ancient world, they did not get along, to put it mildly. Two different groups, two different tribes, two different identities, two different ways of living, two different ways of looking at the world. And when people have different identities, different worldviews, different ways of looking at each other, different ways of, of doing life, then there's a wall. There's a division between people. But it says in verse 15 that he abolished the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, and so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body 
through the cross, thereby ending or killing the hostility. It's, it's very intense language. It's a language of reconciliation between people that you would go, these people could never be on the same page. But somehow through Christ they can. It's amazing. And he ends, he kills, he puts to death the bitterness, the anger, the hatred, the animosity. That's amazing. And it says in verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now verse 19, we have to hover over this thing just a little bit. Um, no longer strangers and aliens. Okay, so who wants to be a stranger? You know, who wants to be a foreigner? Who wants to not belong? No longer strangers and aliens. Who wants to be an alien? You know, who wants to be far off? Again, who wants to not belong, not be a part of? He said, well, that's what you were, but no longer, no longer. So here's language that is equally as intense as that is negative. He says, here's what you are now. You are fellow citizens with the saints, and you're actually members of the household of God. Now, the household of God means the family of God. You are members of a new family. You are citizens of a new spiritual nationality that God has created. It's like a spiritual nation that now you belong to in your life. You have a new identity. You have new brothers and sisters. You have a new city, a new politic, actually, is, is the word there which is kind of intense. He said, it's a whole new ball game for you guys. That's amazing. And then it goes on to say in verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Wow. Now let's... Do an exercise. Let's think about the difference between the, how that paragraph begins and how it ends. Think about it for a minute. Where do we start? Jews and Gentiles, name-calling, separate, alienated, far off, not belonging, strangers, aliens. That's where we started. Hostility, resentment, anger, aggression, walls dividing. That's where we started. Where do we end? Peace, oneness, family, and not only that, but these different people that are so different now actually being built together, built together to be something, to be the very dwelling place of God. I cannot imagine a more radical transformation from verse 11 to verse 22. I just can't picture it. It's, just, it's like astounding. What happens? If you want a picture, a picture of the power of unity, let's think about this. Let's just think of bricks. 
Just think of a pile of bricks. But then take the bricks and build them together. You know, if you have a pile of bricks, you throw them out in a field, it's just a pile of bricks. If you collect them and you build them and you cement them together and you make a building, you make a cathedral out of them, a place of beauty, a place of refuge. Amazing how those bricks can be transformed, right? This is the image of the church. This is a picture of the power of unity. And it's great. So here's what I did. I thought, that's kind of amazing. I'm gonna, I, I want to put these two ideas side by side. So I went through the chapter and I just wrote down some of the words and I put them in the division column, right? So here you see words from this paragraph that are on the division side of the equation. Separated, alienated, strangers, far off, dividing wall hostility. All those words are in the passage. All of those words actually describe reality. That's a reality. This isn't make-believe. This is the real world that we live in. Now, there's another column, and that column is all the words of unity that are in this passage, and I actually missed a few when I quickly made my little slide this morning. Brought near, peace, one new man, one body, fellow citizens, God's family, joined together, built together. And I actually missed the word reconciled, which is kind of like, like that's a big one, and I missed it, all right? So I ran out of room, but there it is. Isn't it weird to see one paragraph that has those, all of those intense ideas side by side? And then the question is, what is it that could possibly bridge the gap between the left side and the right side? Between the one column of the division and the other of the unity? What is it that could bridge that gap? And the answer is Jesus. It's actually the cross of Christ. It's the only thing that can bridge that gap. And so here's what I want you to think about with me this morning. This call to unity in Christ. It's not something that we can accomplish on our own or even have to accomplish on our own. It's actually a miracle of the gospel. It's a miracle of the gospel. It's very important for us to understand this. It's what I call the second miracle of the gospel. The first miracle of the gospel is the miracle of your salvation. That's the first part of Ephesians 2, which also uses some intense language, by the way. It says you were dead in your sin and your trespasses and your guilt before God. And under the power of, of sin and, and of this world and of Satan. And, but even in that, God, by his grace, forgave you and he raised you up and gave you the gift of salvation in Christ. I mean, that's, that's a miracle. That's the miracle of the gospel, part one. And a lot of Christians, they stop right there. They go, that's so cool. I'm fine, I'm good. Like, I, I got that and that's all I want. But you have to keep reading because miracle number two of the gospel goes with it. You cannot separate the two. The Lord gave us miracle number one of our salvation, our forgiveness, our new life in Christ, that he might lead us into miracle number two, and that is the unity of the body of Christ as we live out together as one. That's the second part of chapter two. 
And this is the work of God in our world. Jews and Gentiles, the dividing wall of hostility, and God doing something about it through Christ. Now, the dividing wall of hostility that we find in chapter 2 is a metaphor for the state of humanity, the state of our world. When Paul spoke in this letter of Ephesians, he's addressing a real situation, Jews and Gentiles. And in the ancient world in particular, these people were at odds, and as the gospel spread, um, Gentiles were getting saved, and, and the Jews didn't like that, and there's all these major problems that happened. And all of that is sort of symbolically shown by the dividing wall of hostility that he speaks of. And there actually was a literal dividing wall. In the temple in Jerusalem, they had what they called the court of the Gentiles. And then there's a wall dividing the rest of the temple. And the Gentiles could come into the court of the Gentiles, and then there's a line, like drawn in the sand, drawn across the temple. And it's like, you cannot go across this line. And there were 13 signs posted that said, if you cross that line and you're not Jewish, you will be put to death. I call that hostility. (laughs) You will die. You cannot go any further than this. And it was a literal wall, but it also is a figurative wall. And it was inflamed by these commandments of the law. Why? Because the Jews, to the Jews, the commandments of the law, it wasn't just something for them to do and to keep before God, but it actually was a point of pride. We have these laws and you don't. We know how life works and you don't. We know how to be clean before God and you don't. And so these laws, this way of doing life, that was in the Old Testament scriptures, it it became for them a point of pride. And that wall of division gets bigger and bigger. And here's the thing. All of that to me is a picture of the world that we live in. It is the nature of humanity in the sinful world to always divide. To divide around almost anything. But so often it's around ethnicity, it's around religion, can be tribes. But what we would call tribes in the U.S. is not just those things, but it's anything that for you, it's what you and your friends are into. It's amazing. As I have gone to different cultures in the world, one of the things that I've watched, and I'm, I'm seeing it more and more and more, is the nature of humanity to divide. In Myanmar, I've learned a bit from Pastor Nopum about the tribes in Myanmar, many tribes in Myanmar. The Bamar tribe is the largest tribe in Myanmar. And actually, you may not know this, I, I didn't know it until recently, but the Bamar being the largest tribe, what happened is when the British went into Myanmar, they decided that since the Bamar was the largest tribe, that they would just call everyone Bamar. So that's the reason why it was called Burma. Because the British said, well, the Bamar is the largest tribe, so like, why make it complicated? We'll just call it Burma, right? Now, I just want to go on record as saying, and I say this you know, with, with a clean heart, I think, but the British really messed up a lot of things. <laughs> okay, send me an email later and get mad at me, but I'm just telling you. 
I mean, this wasn't a good idea because what happened was it created, inflamed the ethnic divisions that were there. Because in the north, you have the Chin and the Kachin. And a little bit south from there, you have the Karin. You have Rakhine off by the coast. There's all these different ethnic groups. And they all have their own way of doing things. And, and many of them had their own dialects, their own languages, their own way of looking at the world. And they had their own pride and they had their own history. And even to this day, you go to Myanmar, all this conflict is festering. Now in Myanmar, people have to have an identity card. And so there's, there's the identity card from Myanmar. And on that card, there will be many things on that card. But here are two things that are on that card. One is, what ethnic group are you from? What tribe are you from? And the other is, what religion are you? Those are on that card. So think for a minute about my friend Nopum. Because Nopum is from Chin State in the north. And there's a pecking order. And the Bamar are on the top. And, and then it goes down. And the Chin, they're down here. But there's religion too. And he's Christian. So on his card, it's Chin, which is down. And then it's Christian, down even more. And everybody knows it. Everybody's aware of where they stand. And there's tension and there's conflict. That identity card is it's like a wall of division that's been handed to people for their pride or for their shame. That's the way our world operates. I find that in the U.S., we... Kind of go at things a bit differently, though often race in itself will be that wall of division. But there's so many divisions. There's all kinds of divisions. There's social status, wealth, or poverty. There's liberals, and there's conservatives. There's all these different approaches and ways of seeing life and ways of thinking, and we've, we've come into a group. That group becomes our identity. And then what happens is there's just wall after wall after wall after wall. Can I show you something? Let me show you where we're going. Let me show you God's heart and God's plan. It's in the book of Revelation in chapter 7. Revelation 7 and in verse 9. Here's a picture of the future. Revelation 7, 9, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that a great picture? That's a picture of our future in heaven before the Lord. And the Lamb who went to the cross for us and shed his blood for us so that we could all be forgiven, that's all nations, all tribes, all languages, all points of view, so to speak. They're all there before the Lord if Jesus is the Lord and the Savior of those lives. But here's the thing. 
We can't wait till heaven for that to happen. God's idea isn't, oh, well, this is great. You know, we'll just forgive your sins and we'll let everybody fight. And then someday you'll be there before the throne. You know, you'll all be singing together and it'll be great. And I'll sort it out then. That's not the way it works. No, instead, God says in Ephesians 2, I'm actually doing something amazing. I'm taking right now in the church and I'm bringing all of these lives together and making them one. That's the program of God. It's a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. You know, sometimes I hear these days that there is no place for racism in the church. And I think, you know, that is so weak. What a weak statement that is. There's no place for racism in the church? Really? Is that all we have to say? I think we need to go a thousand times beyond that. And we need to say the church should be the very place where there is hope and a model of reconciliation that is seen nowhere else in the world. It's not enough to say, oh, we don't want racism here. It's better to say we want all races here and we want the lordship of Jesus to show how all people, all tribes and all languages don't have to wait to heaven to actually become one. That's what the Lord is calling us to. That's the picture that we get from the word. But it's tricky. It's tricky. In order for the church to actually have unity, there's some things that have to happen. Now, in the next three weeks, you're going to hear about unity. And we're going to tell you our view of unity at River West Church. Our view of unity at River West Church is that it's about three things. It's about how we see each other. It's about how we treat each other. And it's about how we work together for the cause of Christ. How we see each other, how we treat each other, how we work together. Now, do you notice those are very practical things. Those are very concrete things. Sometimes you hear about Christian unity and it sounds very ethereal, right? Have you ever heard of the mystical unity of the saints? It's like this idea. It's like all Christians throughout all time, throughout all history, and in all places are all united by the Spirit of God in Christ. That's unity. And I'm thinking, nice. That's really cool. That's a great idea, and I actually think that's probably true. But my question is, what good does that do me? What good does that do anybody? Because if the, if the unity is just a figurative or an imaginary or an invisible or a spiritual unity, it's not very much practical good in the real world. The unity that Christ calls us to is real unity. The unity Christ calls us to, it has to do with the quality of our relationships, you and me, people in this room. It's our relationships. It's how we see each other. It's how we treat each other. It's how we work together. It's how we worship the Lord together. It's like in real time, it's right now, it's real, and it matters. And it really, really matters. And that's what's going on here. So how do we see each other? Can I show you something? Take a look at verse 19 in Ephesians 2. This is a great verse. 2.19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints are with the saints and members of the household of God. 
And you know what, what he does in this verse is? He is giving us the gospel miracle of a new identity. He's giving us a new way of seeing ourselves and those around us. He's saying, you know, you used to see people as being in these categories. Well, you're over here and you're far away and you don't think right. And, you know, you're kind of weird and you're a liberal and you're a conservative. And you know, I'm not too sure about that. And, you know, in, in all these categories. He says, well, that's what you used to be. But no more. He says, now you're actually a family. You're the family of God. You're brothers and sisters in Christ. How do you see each other? That's the question. He says, you used to be far away and disconnected, but he says, now you're fellow citizens together. Citizens of what? It's a new spiritual nationality that God gives his people. And I'm using those words very intentionally because the, the language in the passage is about citizenship. We hear so much about nationalism and the growing move of nationalism in the world. And there's always politics going around and people are building walls everywhere. And I'm not making a political statement, I'm just saying it's true. There's walls, people are advocating building walls everywhere. And it's because they want to protect their national identity. All right? And so people are going to argue about that and I'll probably get emails and whatever. That's fine. What I'm telling you is that in Christ there's a new reality and that reality is above national identity for a Christian. It is a spiritual nation. It is a spiritual kingdom. And Christians from every nation are in that nation. And that's the miracle of the gospel. And that's the basis of unity of the church. And so I told Pastor Christopher this last week. I said, I feel like we have a lot to repent of, you know, as Christians. Just right now, this is so much for us to repent of. Because so many Christians are so worked up about so many things. But I wonder sometimes if people aren't elevating issues above the gospel. Or worse yet, they actually think that their issue is the gospel. <laughs> no, my, no, are you kidding? This is the gospel. No, it's not. That's not the gospel. So we, we have some things to repent of. You say, well, Pastor, how do I know if I need to repent? Well, here's an easy way to know. If you're more worked up about your political point of view, if you're more agitated about your political point of view and, and versus others around you, if you're more agitated about that than you are about the need for unity in the body of Christ, there's something to repent of. You've got to repent. I get people are agitated. They're coming up to me. They're so agitated. You know, I get liberals coming up to me. They're just so agitated, you know. And they're telling me stuff, and they're looking for a reaction, you know. They want to know if I'm on their team. <laughs> and then I walk away, I get a conservative walks over. And they're just worked up, and they're telling me all this stuff, and they're watching me. They're looking for a reaction. They want to know if I'm on their team, you know. <laughs> That's the world we live in right now, right? It really is. And here's, you know, you know what I do? I walk away, and I go, I pray to God that in these Christian lives, there was half as much agitation about the desire to see the body of Christ be a healing place of unity as there is for all that stuff. And if there was, it'd be amazing. You see, that's, I believe that's Christ's agenda for the church. I believe it has to start with us. We have to learn how to 
love each other. We have to learn how to see each other, not through the lenses of a political grid or any ideology, but through the gospel. We have to learn how to treat each other with love and respect and forgiveness and forbearance and generosity and grace. We have to learn how to work together even though we have differences. Now look at that's I call that a miracle. That's a miracle. That's a miracle number two of the gospel. You know what? Through the cross it can happen. Through the cross. By the blood of Jesus, we can be reconciled. It's amazing. It's the only thing in the world with the power to make this happen. I tell you, I get over to No Pooms Church, and I, it just <laughs> tickles me. I'm not kidding you. It tickles me. Because he, he'll tell me, he goes, see that guy in the back? That guy's Bamar. <laughs> he's Bamar. I mean, literally, like he's, he's told me. And I'm like, you know, that doesn't really mean a lot where I'm coming from. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I mean... You tell me something else like in the U.S., but no, he's Bamar. And, and you know, and Nopuma is going, it's amazing this at my church because I'm, I'm a pastor and I'm from Chin State. He goes, do you know how weird that is? I'm like, no. I actually, I have no idea how weird that is, but evidently it's pretty weird. <laughs> evidently, you know. And it's like, and he'll tell me. He goes, well, this person in their Kachin over here, and this is Chin, and this person, and I'm like, he's introducing people by their ethnicity and they're all Christians in his church. And, and he's also, and it's, a, it's awesome, but at the same time, it's a prayer. It's like a prayer request. He actually is like, pray for me. He goes, this is hard. It's hard to like manage <laughs> this group of people. As Christians, in a Buddhist country, you'd think they'd be united because everyone else is Buddhist, but it's like, you know, it's human nature. So what about us? What about us? Unity is straight number five. There is no healthy, living Church of Christ without unity. And I don't mean pretend, esoteric, invisible, spiritual unity. I mean real unity, where the quality of our relationships tells a story. And that's what the Lord's working on, and that's my hope. See, I believe it's a miracle and also a calling. It's a miracle. The Lord has paved the way for us through the cross. We're going to come to the table of communion in just a little while. And this table, the Lord's table, this is the place of unity. Every person comes to the table of communion and they come as a broken sinner in need of Christ. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what political party. It doesn't matter your ideology. It doesn't matter what language you speak. None of it matters. When you come to the foot of the cross, all that matters is you're a sinner and Jesus is a savior. You're not above anybody. You're not below anybody because you can't get any lower. (laughs) And here's the blood of Christ. You can't be more loved than you are in Christ. And the Lord says, now turn around and love your neighbor as yourself. Love them. Love them. And all of a sudden, the church can do something that can't happen anywhere else in the world. That's our calling. That's what Jesus is praying for. Let's have the worship team come forward and I'd like you to pray with me. We love you, Lord, and we We're humbled, Lord, by these truths. And at the same time, we're excited about it, Lord. Thank you so much, Lord, that the Christian life isn't boring. (laughs) Um, Lord, you call us to something that is so grand and magnificent. And you give us so much to, to help us, Lord, to be that, to stand in that, Lord. Everything we need in Christ. And yet, Lord, we know our own hearts. 
And we pray for help, Lord. We pray that we might be one. We pray that we might love each other. We pray, Lord, that we might not lay our Christian identity as a thin veneer on the top of all the other identities that we're really worked up about. Or may we be worked up about Jesus, the cross, grace, the body of Christ being one. Please, Lord, meet us now, I pray, as we come to the table. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.